0: right, here we go. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Mailbag. My name is Marcus Speller, and that guy lurking over there, it's Andy Brassel. Hello. Andy, good to have you here. Good to have all of you Patreon subscribers here. Thank you once again for getting involved in in Patreon and Mailbag and so on and so forth. And uh, we've got some of your questions that we've collated from the Mailbag channel in the Patreon, and Andy Brassel is rearing... And ready to go and get his fangs into those questions. Would it be right to say that, Andy?
1: Raring and ready. Well, <laughs> maybe I'd say, maybe I'd say, uh, uh, I don't know. It's a bit of a Robin Ribbery situation. You don't want to get confused, do you?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, you're absolutely yeah. right. Well, let's start off nice and uh, nice and fresh with this one from Aaron, who said, "I'd really be interested to know what the opinion is in Portugal." of Wolverhampton Wanderers and the players from their national team that have ended up there? And are there any teams across the continent that have such a noticeable contingent of players from a single country that they don't play in?
1: It's a really interesting question. And um, yes, the enthusiasm for Wolves in Portugal is high. Mm. Um, Not just because uh, Portugal is a country above so many others, that loves to celebrate the success of its countrymen when they go abroad and, and and do a good job. And, of course, the primary examples of this are Cristiano Ronaldo and uh, Jose Mourinho, but they're in no way limited to, to, to those two. Um, but it's also the fact that... Um, Experienced players who have, have done a good job in the Portuguese league, led by João Moutinho, have have gone out to Wolves and and, and done such a a good job. So yeah, they're really closely followed in in, in Portugal. Um, obviously, Nuno is a very well liked character as well, um, not just for his job at Rio Ave, but because of what he was as a, as a player. Because um, we I talked think about he played him. that I th- much, I though. think. Yeah, that, that, that's that's the point, actually. Mm. Um, uh, the, the fact that we, we talked about him, I think, in respect to Ruben Amorim um, a, a while back. And Ruben Amorim um, is the guy who took over at Braga at the start of 2020 and has already been snaffled up by Skint Sporting. And despite being Skint Sporting, they paid... Uh, Ten million euros and plus um, partial economic rights to a couple of players um, to, to to get him in. That that's how highly they they rate him. Mm. Now, what Amorim and uh, Nuno have in common is they were two guys who had kind of voyeuristic football playing careers, really. Because in the case of Amorim, um, th- there are a lot of people who believed he wasn't genuinely top class. His um, reputation was kind of alleged by the fact that he was so versatile. So people were never sure, is he a right back? Is he a right midfielder? Is he a centre midfielder, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. And he had quite a lot of injuries. With Nuno, he was mainly a reserve goalkeeper for, for most of his career. And a, a lot of that at Porto, although, of course, he's famously George Mendes' first ever client. Now, there are two things with Nuno. Firstly, the fact that his legend was augmented – as the reputation of George Mendes has augmented simply yeah. because um he's obviously very close to him, they're like family. That that is part of George Mendes style that he becomes like family to to the players who, who he works with, as as well as the fact that he's become something to genuinely aspire to. Mm-hmm. Um Just to but, cut in, you Nandy, know,
0: have you ever come across George
1: Mendes at all? Have I met him in person? Yeah. No, okay. no, I've not met him in person. All right. You cut in for that. <laughs>
0: well, I just, I just wondered what what kind of figure he cuts. I mean, he is this. Some people, the way he's spoken about, is this sort of shadowy figure who's sort of pulling the strings and so on. I just, I just wondered if you, if you had any sort of, well, not dealings, but but you met him at all or chatted to him, and, and whether you like the cut of his jib or not.
1: As he's as he's sort of um, augmented in, in in terms of his his career. He's become a little bit more remote. So you, you'll have players like going back to Wolves, uh, yeah. Huben for example, who for the first couple of years of his career and for the first couple of years of being signed to him, I'd, I'd never met him. It, it was yeah. it was like because Menish's got so many clients, he's obviously got other agents that that work for him and work for Jesterfoot, his his company, and who have personal relationships with with other players. Now, I remember Ruben Neves explaining to me when I interviewed him for the Guardian a couple of years ago when he he just signed for Wolves that he's signed for Mendes simply because it's a template for doing your career right basically. Mm-hmm. So, without even meeting him, he signed for 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 the, for the agency. But um going back to to Nuno, the, the thing about his career is he was someone who was almost, like Ruben Amorim, as I was saying, almost a coach before he was a coach because he was someone who was valued as much for his uh, dressing room and his touchline input as he was for his his playing input. And I think when you, you've got the best seat in the house, when you get to watch the the, the game unfold week after week after week from this unique position, you're developing a head coach's eye or certainly a coach's eye while you're still a a, a player mm-hmm. and that i th- i think in a country where portugal where um your your analysis of the game is considered extremely important in a, in a way much more than it is in england for example where what you say in press conferences is seen as much more important mm-hmm. I, I think his ability to analyze Makes him very very relatable, and and that's why people respond to him and like him. And of course, the fascination has has grown for him as George Mendes has um, achieved more and more and more during during his career. Um, in terms of other clubs, um, well, across Shakhtar Europe, Donetsk
0: that, immediately leaped to mind for that's me. The, Andy.
1: That's the obvious one, isn't it? I mean, you know that they've um, reached a point since they've um, moved away from Donetsk. Of course, they um live and train in Kiev and they they play their their games in Kharkiv now um that th- they've that they've tried to move towards a more um youth academy uh perpetuated model so they they try and produce more Ukrainian players and there are examples of 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 some of those in players like Viktor Kovalenko They've still got eleven Brazilians on the books. Well, I was about so to say something... there is
0: loads, and and one or two of those yeah. Brazilians are now considered Ukrainian because they're they're naturalized Ukrainians. So yeah, Marlos, um, for example. It, yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah, there's such an enormous influence <clears throat> that Bra- Brazilian players have in that in that side. It's it is quite remarkable if you look at it. It is,
1: but whenever you go that way, it's an enormous risk, and I, mm. I, th- I think we saw that with um, Claudio Ranieri's second spell at Valencia after he left. Uh, Chelsea in what 2004 and when he he took over from Rafa Benitez of course which was a tall order because Benitez had just won the title twice in three years Mm -hmm. and um, he signed six players in his first summer or the club signed six players and five of them were Italian and of course the minute it goes wrong which it did quite quickly for Ranieri it was easy for people to go oh well it's the Italians and yeah. like so some of the sporting press in Valencia after Ranieri was fired wrote right, some really disparaging and borderline regionalist stuff sort of saying, oh, well, you know, this is why um, Italian football and Spanish football are like chalk and cheese. And it was easy <laughs> just to, to to point the finger at a certain group. Now, of course, this is a very different tale to what's happened at Wolves and what's happened at Shakhtar because the model has worked very very well for them Mm. but it has to work to get any sort of credit and acceptance
0: very much so and of course Portuguese people are used to seeing their players go abroad quite a lot really on on mass so it's it's not too surprising for them to see a few of their players but of course there is quite a big Portuguese contingent as Aaron uh, points out there um Let's move on. Uh, Lee R says, there's been a lot of talk of her to Berlin about the investment in the playing squad, but I'd be interested to know if Andy knows any more about their plans to build a new ground. From what I've read online, using my limited German, it seems to have hit a stumbling block. Andy.
1: Or several stumbling blocks, Lee, uh, yeah. because um, they've got... A, a huge difficulty Un, unlike any other Bundesliga club. And I, I say that with the knowledge that, that, that Freiburg are, are moving at the end of this season, whenever that may be. Um, but their, um, hurters um, uh, need to move is absolutely huge because you're looking at a league in which, um, the crowd and what they can give you is such a huge part of it. It's such a huge part of the experience. It's such a huge part of the international perception of the Bundesliga. Now, as, as you'll be aware, Lee, there are two huge issues with the Olympic Stadion. Um, firstly, it's absolutely miles away from the pitch because it's got a running mm-hmm. track, because it is an Olympic stadium. And two, it's absolutely enormous. Um, mm-hmm. Now, because it's... Um, a historic building it clearly can't be uh rebuilt or modified or brought in in the way of we've talked about ral sotheidad on on here before and how the Anoeta's um atmosphere has been much improved by the fact they've got rid of the running track by bringing the stands in one by one and what the Anoeta is now compared to what it was like two or three years ago is absolutely extraordinary you wouldn't believe it's the the same stadium and in a way I suppose that rebuild was kind of modeled on what was done to, to Stanford bridge. I mean, I remember going to Stanford bridge as a kid and not only did it look like it was falling to pieces, (laughs) but the, the gap between the stands and the pitch was so much that they used to do that thing where they could like, you know, sort of do car sort of outdoor car showrooms at halftime where they could <laughs> you know drive a new rover behind the goal in front of the shed. With a Chelsea legend oh, in the back this. waving <laughs> yeah yeah exactly available now for 7999
0: <laughs> yeah but her to berlin you know playing at the olympic stadium i mean it's it's like it's the equivalent well it's a bit like west ham with their situation but more accurately might might be like a side I know there was talk of Chelsea moving into Wembley Stadium for a bit. That's what it's yeah. like. It's like a team playing at Wembley.
1: Yeah, it, it is. It is a little bit. Of course, there's a greater attachment because they've been there for a, a, a longer time. But really, filling it up is a is a, is a huge problem mm. because even if they average fifty thousand, that's only probably about. 65, 70% of the capacity. Um, oh, okay. When you bear in mind that, that Bundesliga stadiums are famously full, you've got mm. two problems. Firstly, it needs to look full. And even if it is full, and we've seen this with a lot of Italian grounds like uh, Napoli and Roma, you can have an enormous crowd and it can look empty. Because I mean, Alpi,
0: where Juventus yeah. used to play, I mean, that's this case in point. they yeah, Marcus out. that
1: genuinely was empty. That, yeah. that's, 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 the, that's the difference. I mean, they got they got sub twenty thousand crowds for, for like Champions League games against Bayern Munich and, and and stuff like that. But the thing is, even if the the stadium hasn't got a spare seat in it, if it's miles away from the pitch. You can't tell, really. And Mm. I think so much of the way we perceive football now and we perceive football internationally, of course, is from television and it needs to look good. I think Mm. that's really important. The other part of it, of course, is the fact that um, Berlin, as a capital city, um, not only has football-curious fans um, from all over that aren't necessarily Hertha fans, it will have fans from every major club you can think of in In Germany who live there Mm. so they come along in numbers very much like when you go to AFC Wimbledon and you play I don't know Barnsley or Ipswich or a team like that in midweek it's not just about people coming down from there it's that there will be loads of people living in the capital who support that club so the fact that it's so difficult to fill just leaves an enormous gap for a huge load of away fans to come along, which is something that clearly disadvantages Hertha. If it's a Friday night or a Saturday afternoon or whenever, really, you're going to get, like, for example, Borussia Mönchengladbach can bring 20,000 or Schalke can bring 20,000. Mm. That is an enormous disadvantage to Hertha amongst all those disadvantages. So their plan was to build somewhere which was a smaller bespoke football stadium on the, the in the in the sort of olympia Stadium complex really sort of just in a, in a in a neighboring place um the problem they met is um they weren't able to affect compulsory purchase orders on other buildings and uh, residences in that area so they weren't able really to progress with that there's some um federal government resistance as well that's like regional government resistance because they want Herter to keep on paying their substantial rent and to stay at the Olympiastadion. What has been floated as another idea is um, building something within the site of the Berlin-Tegel Airport because they're going to open a new airport in Berlin, the Brandenburg Airport. Now, that's actually scheduled to open – later in 2020. Of course, I suspect it will be delayed like Mm. many other things and many other projects in the current situation we're in. Um, But there's been discussions because Tegel will shut. um, Schoenefeld will remain open, but Tegel will shut when Brandenburg opens. So um, there's the possibility that something could happen there. And that's not so far from Mm. um, the current Olympia Stadion. So that's something that could work really, the 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 date that circled on the on the calendar is 2025 because that's when Herta's um, uh, current lease with um, the proprietors of the Olympic Stadion is up. So they've got something to work towards, but mm. you know they're, they're getting short of time because five years yeah. is is not really that long to submit plans to get the land, all that sort of stuff, and but it's to have a long their own time. Stadium, it's a it's long important. time for
0: Lee. It's a long time for Lee to wait to go and see them in a new stadium. You've got it's to think about the people, time. Andy.
1: It's been, been a long time for Lee to wait to get to the end of this question. Andy, you've, you've got is, to... But that is very you've, much you've, the style of the mailbag.
0: You've got, to, you've got to think of the people, Andy, for crying out loud. You've got to think of the Lee Arles of this world. move on to Richard Hinman who says what's your favourite great escape from European football mine would be Regina zero uh, 2006 2007 season sorry started on negative 15 points after Calciopoli uh, final day win over soon to be European champions Milan to relegate Kievo. Roland uh, Bianchi and Nicola Amoruso up front with 35 goals between them. Walter Mazzari in the dugout, lovely stuff. Oh no, Walter Mazzari on the bench, or was he? He was manager. Yeah, uh, coach, head coach. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, so he put it on. He said Walter Mazzari on the bench, and I thought, hang on, surely not. (laughs) Uh, But yes, uh, that was that incredible season uh, for the, the relegation places in Serie A, where. Uh, Chievo went down in 18th place on 39 points, and mm. four teams, Regina, Siena, Torino, and Cagliari, were above them on 40 points. There were four teams on 40 points. Catania were on 41, Palmer on 42, Livorno on 43. So four points separated. 11th and 18th. It was an incredible um, relegation run. I think into that season, they've got 97 points. So they clearly took all the points from everybody else and everyone was just sort of scrambling away. It was an incredible one. But Andy, would, what would you wade in with?
1: Um, uh, well, I have to say, Regina is a, is, is a difficult one to to, to to beat. That is mm. the, the daddy of them all. Um, yeah. But one of my favourites of, of recent times, if you go back to 10-11 uh, in, in the Bundesliga, Borussia mentioned Gladbach avoiding relegation that season was mm. absolutely incredible, and um, it was authored by Lucien Favre, of course, who's, who's still um, very highly regarded um, Bundesliga and European coach. Mm. Um, I mean, it seemed as if the club and especially Max Ebel, the sporting director, left it way too long to sack Michael Frontsek. I mean, they didn't sack him until like the middle of February. And I, I went out there for a game just after Lucien Favre had taken charge. Where mentioned um, Gladbach were playing away at Wolfsburg, who had just recently sacked Steve McLaren. Oh. Um, now I, I remember that game very well for a, a, a number of reasons. Firstly, because it was part of a spiffing Bundesliga weekend where I went to see a load of games. Um, secondly, because I remember speaking to. Diego, you know the Brazilian playmaker who played for Wolfsburg and very successfully for Werder Bremen before that. Who missed the um, penalty? The he missed
0: the penalty. He wasn't the penalty taker. And McLaren was That's furious. Right.
1: He I was. Remember. He went. He went nuts. And yeah. I, I, um, I asked Diego about that afterwards, and um, you know you'd, you'd expect um, that to be a tough question, and there to be at least a level of con- contrition. And Diego just turned around and went, Pfft. "Well, you know." I'm I'm the team's best player. Of course, I'm going to take the penalties. <laughs> it's like at a big moment, I have to stay step up and make my presence count. And you think, well, that's fine, but you did miss it. I mean, come you on, did, yeah. I'm a bit of contrition there. Well, uh, well, well, um,
0: McLaren at Wolfsburg. I know that's not the point of the the question, but he said that he would give his team talks, and then was it the sporting director or the chairman, one of the big wigs at the club, would basically then just go, yeah, yeah and do his team talk. And McLaren was just like, I'm on, I'm on, hiding to nothing here. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah well i i mean i remember the day that steve mclaren signed for wolfsburg him saying i'm going to do it differently to how i did it in um in holland at Twente. i'm gonna um i'm gonna live here and i'm gonna learn the language and as soon as he said i'm gonna live here i thought you've signed this contract somewhere else, but Wolfsburg, haven't you? Yeah. Like like no one who's been to Wolfsburg is going to openly <laughs> commit to living there. Oh, I mean, you can live, live in Berlin or Hanover or somewhere else. Anyway, um, I, I remember yeah. this game really vividly because, um, Wolfsburg just about won it. And it was a vital win for them in the context of the season because they only just escaped, um, relegation. And, um, Gladbach were really good and they were really unlucky on the night but you thought well they haven't got enough points to play with to be this unlucky you know a game like that where they played well they battered Wolfsburg for the last 30-35 minutes in that game you've got to win it and the fact that yeah. you're not says that you're not going anywhere and when um, when five took over they were seven points adrift of the last playoff spot with three months of the season to go and you look at a game like that where it clearly did something to them, but 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 they couldn't win. And the feeling was that Favre was sort of rebuilding a team to get promoted from the second tier the next season. Like people had completely written them off. Mm-hmm. But they really motored towards the end of the season. On the final day, track Frankfurt fell into the final relegation spot and Gladbach got into the playoff spot. And then they beat Bochum over two legs, including, and I remember Friedan Funkel, the coach of Bochum, was furious after the, uh, the first leg. This is all about furious coaches, this section, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. um, but ba- basically, um, there were two minutes of stoppage time added. And in the third minute of stoppage time, Igor De Camargo scored the winner for Borussia Mönchengladbach in the first leg at Borussia Park. And, you know, it's, it's only like a minimum mm-hmm. amount of stoppage time. But, of course, coaches never follow that, especially when they've got a B in their bonnet. <laughs> anyway, it was a vital goal from Di Camargo. And um, they went on after going a goal down in the, in, in the second leg at Balkan. Uh Marco Royce actually scored the equaliser. and This was the really interesting bit, I think, at the end of this season. The fact that there were big players who came through for them. Like Dante was fantastic in the last couple of months of the season. Um, but also, this was the point where Marc-Andre Tishtegen, who just turned at 18, he mm. emerged. Marco Royce, who was 20 and has always been open about what an important coach Lucien Favre has been in, in his career. Of course, the minute that Favre arrived at Borussia Dortmund, he, he made him captain. And they really started to emerge as important players. And having escaped mm-hmm. really at the last... In this 2010-11 season, the next season, Favre guided them into fourth place and into the Champions yeah. League, which is a really incredible achievement mm. and showed that you know the extent of the turnaround that was that that, that was done eventually.
0: Fabulous! All right, then, Andy, <laughs> let's uh, absolutely you be ashamed.
1: <laughs> Da brauchst du und da ist der Camargo und da ist schon wieder Luthe und da ist Hanke. Der Camargo, Tor, Gladbach eins null. Und was jetzt, Luthe? Das ist ja unfassbar.
0: Stevie Bear asks this. Samuel Chukweze, is it Chukweze? let pronounced pronounce that. Yes. Um, uh, young Nigerian who plays for Villarreal of course uh, he says I wonder if Andy could give us any information about him what type of player he is if there is much hype about him and does he see him fitting in at a big La Liga club or somewhere else in Europe
1: I, I really like him uh, I think he's he's terrific um, Villarreal is his is first European club um, having come over from Nigeria and uh, joined the academy and um there's there's really a lot to like about him. There have been Arjan Robin comparisons made because mm. um he's very left footed, quick, comes in from that, that right hand side, normally drifts in to, to to get the ball in or to 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 get a shot in. Um but I th- I think there's there's a lot to him. I think that's an oversimplification of 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 what he can do. And whereas I understand like the the left foot and the, the the pace are very seductive elements of his game. Um, he's, he's got an eye for a pass that you wouldn't necessarily expect of a twenty year old. I think, mm-hmm. um, which is is something that really impresses me. He, he takes um, the right option more times than you would necessarily expect of of someone of of, of that age, and um, he's someone who's really establishing himself as an Im- important player in, in in La Liga. I think you look at him now and you think. It's a very gradual progression um I don't know whether he'll stick on the right hand side long term or whether even he could be given a more central role i, I think that would that would be reasonable. I'm not sure maybe th- that necessarily works for the al right now and I, I think because of his pace they tend to they've tended this season certainly to use him more as an impact sub as well i mean he's 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 started Um, probably about 14, 15 games, Mm -hmm. but he's played nearly as many as sub as well. So, you know, they're they're looking to use him both ways and there's the feeling that he's developing more gradually. Um, But of course, Villarreal is a a brilliant club to develop at. I think Mm -hmm. you you look at them and the way they've um, brought through young players over the years, the fact that you're playing at a level where you're expected to challenge for, for Europe and you do consistently challenge for Europe, but there's not big club pressure there. It's, it's mm-hmm. a bit of an oasis really in La Liga or even elite European football terms um, because it is a, a small place and a small club. So um, I, I think it's too soon to talk about him going to one of, one of the elite clubs of Spain because, or anywhere else, because I, I just think he'd get a bit lost at the moment. I think far better for player and club is they hold on to him a bit more. He incrementally becomes more and more important. And when it reaches that sort of tipping point where it's obvious that he's too good for them, that's the point to sell him. Never mind the fact that no one's going to have any money this summer when the transfer (laughs) window actually happens. And I, I think that will... That will affect the transfer window, actually, especially for players like Chiquese because, you know, the clubs want to feel – you can only sell them once. You want to feel like you're getting good value, don't you? So I think it would be advantageous for him, not just on a playing level, but advantageous for the for the club to hold on a little bit more, make sure they can really fatten the calf, get decent mm-hmm. value for him, and wait for the transfer market to get back to a, a point where – um you can get what you see as good value for for, for those sort of players. So it doesn't feel like the right time for him to to move for me, but Mm -hmm. he's a very exciting player and I think he's smart enough to go a very, very long way.
0: Nice one. Okay. Andy, we're going to we're gonna squeeze this one in at the end very quickly because it's a subject that's very close to your heart. And Gaz is as well. Gaz has asked, was that, I was going to ask Andy if he has any updates on the mighty AFC Wimbledon <laughs> Stadium. I live around the corner and the construction work seems to have stopped. Could be for obvious reasons, of course. Um, and if he thinks we'll be able to hit the crowdfunding total to get it completed. Andy, any insight into AFC Wimbledon's new stadium?
1: Uh, well, I might have had a slight involvement in um, the mm. Lane Bond campaign, which is, is, has done very well, mm. obviously, and made up a lot of that 11 million deficit. Have you
0: done very well out of it, too, Andy? That's the question.
1: That's for a couple of years down the line. <laughs> <laughs> no, no it's, it, it's, it's something that's been amazing to see all the fans come together and. Um, put such a huge dent in this funding shortfall that there was. I was lucky enough to get a little tour around um, the stadium site a couple of Mm -hmm. – I was going to say a couple of weeks ago. It's probably about a month ago now. And um, it's it's looking amazing. It's it's quite overwhelming when you go in there and it looks like an actual football Mm. stadium. They've come a really long way and it does look – recognizably something. Uh there were some new pictures that came out uh, just this week of further progress that's been made so uh, the the one um permanent stand because of course they want to retain the option to up it from just under 10,000 capacity to 20,000 if things go well. Uh, the one permanent stand is 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 looking incredible, the roofs on all the rest of it. Um mm-hmm. clearly there are challenges for every football club financially at the moment. But um yeah. Wimbledon appear to be in a pretty good position and certainly in a much position better position than they were three, four months ago.
0: Lovely old job. Speaking of uh, s- South London football stadiums, it was, I don't know, a couple of months ago, I was driving along on, uh, would it be the West? No, it wouldn't be the West. Uh, one of the flyovers and I went past and I, and I looked and I completely forgot that Brentford were building a new stadium but I looked and I was like, well, yeah, that's on the Westway. It is, West, it is the Westway. I was like, yeah. What the bloody hell is that? And I was like, it must, round here, it's got to be Brentford. I was like, oh yeah, of course, Brentford. Yeah, their stadium looks quite something. I, I will It looks uh, the
1: part, doesn't it? It really, really
0: does. It, yeah, it does very much so. Yeah, I look forward to popping along there to see a match. But Andy, I went to AFC Wimbledon yeah. once and it was with yourself. So I look forward to my invite. Uh, around the VIP table when all this uh, business is (laughs) over and uh, footballs back and uh, up and running again. Uh, There we are, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much for listening to The Mailbag. Thank you very much for your questions. We do appreciate it greatly. Andy, thank you to you. If it wasn't for you, Andy Brassel, this would be a very short show and it it would be embarrassing for me indeed. So thank you very much. Um, Thanks for having
1: me. And uh, thanks, Ramblers, for your questions.
0: Absolutely right. Um, I suppose, ladies and gentlemen, we'll see you next week for another mailbag. Do get your questions in on the Discord. We do appreciate them, and, uh, and we do read and value every single one. Lots of love. See you soon. a Stakhanov production.